right. Good morning, everyone. How's everybody? Ryder didn't need to tell me this, but he told me he was going to get up to like 100 today. I'm kind of over it. Summer was wonderful. It was absolutely fantastic. But um, we could just bump that down just a couple degrees. Thankfully, you moved to the desert. What did you expect? <clears throat> That's the, the answer. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, first of all, thank you for another day. Thank you for another opportunity. You have blessed us so abundantly with the people that you have put in our lives. Smiles and hugs and the faces. We are so very blessed. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we get to gather together in your name. Father, we're going to open your word. Please bless this time that we have together. Please open your heart and your mind to us. Please fill us with your spirit. We are seeking you. We are earnestly seeking your face. Please turn toward us and bless us. Amen. We had food bank yesterday. I guess we had, what, 150 some odd families um, that, that we served yesterday. Yeah. yeah. It was kind of a rough food bank yesterday. <laughs> Everybody was kind of raw and on edge. Um, it was hot. Um, it was not, a, not an easy day. Uh, I cannot thank everyone that came and helped enough. Um, it was, like I say, it was not an easy time. I know it was not an easy time. I know it was, you know, it would have been very easy for people to be grumpy or to have not come, certainly not for two days in a row, certainly not for the volume that we had. We ran late, I mean, all of the things. So thank you, I thank you very much. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, so the next thing we have coming up will be August 29th. We have the fifth Sunday. We'll have our, our communion. We'll have potluck. We are going to have a, a guest speaker. We're going to have a Young Life, uh, who's one of our missions that we're going to be supporting, come and talk to us. Um, uh, John's not here this morning, but um, as, our, as our, we're moving this mission stuff forward, they're going to come and sp- talk to us about what they do. And uh, it'll be kind of exciting to see like, what the what the newfangled kids are doing these days. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm excited. It'll be great. Um, some update on, on, on Walt. He is home. Yay. Yes. Shannon, I, I would have you come and do your impression of Walt running, but I don't think you follow <laughs> Ask Shannon to show you how Walt runs now. Or we'll wait when we see our old cowboy when he, when he gets to come back. That'll be fantastic. Uh, we have uh, the Tuesday evening studies resuming on September 14th, and uh, then see Miss Wendy and Miss Jill and Mr. Ron are off camping, but um, see them about their studies. Uh, the kiddos are off in Sunday school. I, I hear rumor they're going to build an ark. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like. I don't think they exactly know, but if you start to see a large wooden structure forming next door, just know that's what's going on. Is that they have the kids were they they went to the teachers like, hey, can we build an ark and they're going to build an ark. I don't know if it's going to be like this big or this big or if we're all going to go out on, you know, Highline Lake at some point. I don't know. <laughs> but you just know that they are going to, uh, to, to take on that adventure. Uh, and like I said, we have the, the missions. And I just want to reiterate that the whole point of us uh, jumping into the missions and, and doing this is we want to step out in faith. So as the as we ask you to do, we ask you to, uh, to step out in faith, to step out into your mission, to spread the gospel, to reach other people. 
We want to lead by example. So as a church, globally, we are going to uh, focus on not just food bank as a mission, which we do, which God has abundantly provided for, but then to focus on other missions as well, both locally and internationally throughout the world, that we can focus on spreading the gospel to unreached places. And today's message, of course, I mean, ties right, right into this, but um, that is the, the idea, is that we would not be stuck within our four walls, that we would continue to proclaim the gospel, not in, only in our valley, um, but throughout the world. And part of that, we are going to be at the farmer's market um, starting next week, next Saturday. We will have a booth at the farmer's market. Um, we will um, have a sign-up sheet at the, the back of the church. Um, just short shifts. We don't want to, um, number one, overwhelm the volunteers, and then number two, overwhelm the, the people. We could invade full-on the farmer's market. Um, but generally speaking, people run away uh, when, when we invade like that, especially, you know, with the armor and the, the weapons. It just doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but again, um, like I said, the, the idea is to, uh, to get out of our four walls, to be out in the community. And I guess what I, I want to make sure that this is not a, it's not a gimmick or promotional stunt. Our goal is to spread the gospel. So when we go to farmer's market, we are going to be setting up basically a prayer booth to start off. And that is we're just going to be inviting people to come um, so that we can pray with them. That will be the first format. And then as we, as we progress, if there's some way that we can um, you know, speak the gospel, proclaim the gospel there, um, we will do that. But we're going to start off just by offering prayer. So that will be, like I said, starting off next Saturday and we will continue for uh, through the month of September. I don't think we're going to go into October, um, but we will do that on the Saturday mornings. Um, and I, I don't know the exact times. We'll meet Miss Jill for, for all of the details, but we will have the sign-up sheet at the back of the church. So that's it. That's all the announcements. We're going to jump right into our scripture for today. So if you'll turn into your Bibles, we're in John chapter 6. We're in verses 16 through 29. There's some overlap, and we're going to have quite a bit of overlap from the previous week. And this really is one of those, it's an unusual treatment of this miracle. It's an unusual passage. The way that John does this, and he does it on purpose, and I hope that I can, I can tease this out. I have to tell you that I've, I've really struggled with this over the week, hoping that I can find a way to draw out what John is trying to do here. It's really magical what he is attempting to do with this statement of Jesus walking on the water. So we're in John chapter 6, verses 16 through 29. It says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus or his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval." 
when they asked him, what must we do to do the good works of God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So part of this, we're going to recap what we did last week. But this message this week is really a message of encouragement. Last week we had sort of an admonishment. It was a, it was a message of what not to do. It was a warning, a caution of how not to act. And this week we get, as a believers, we get a message of encouragement. So I want to ask you guys a question. Anybody have a, a rough week? Anyone? I had kind of a rough week. Anybody ever have times when they felt alone? Times when they felt like they were in a storm. Times of, of great sadness, times of, of loss. Times when we felt like we were really struggling. Have you guys ever felt like Christ had abandoned you? Like he wasn't with you? Anybody ever feel that way? Anybody ever feel like, man, the Holy Spirit seems far from me? And I feel like I'm lost. Anyone ever feel like that? This message is a message of encouragement. Now, there's a caution here, and that is that, because there are people that go throughout their entire lives, and they don't know the Spirit, and they don't know Christ. So they don't know what it's like to lose Christ. So when they're on their own, out in the storm, in some ways, when Christ is far away from us, it's worse as a believer, because we know what it's like when he's near us. We know what it's like to feel the warmth. We know what it's like to feel the support, to feel the provision. So when it's not near, when God withdraws, when we face testing, it's a lot harder. It, it hurts us quite a bit more sometimes because we know the good part. It's like, you know, when you uh, have had really, really good Mexican food. Then when you have really bad Mexican food, you're like, <laughs> right? Whereas if you'd never had the really good stuff before, you wouldn't know the difference. But, you know, having had the good stuff, we call it the usual around here. We go over to El Tapatio. When you've had the good stuff, there's a, a place that we always go to down in, uh, but my sister used to live down in uh, Albuquerque. And there's a little place that we would always go to, and uh, a little family-run place that, you know, uh, Tomas's that we would go to, and you get the, you have to get the, the Christmas chili. You have to get the red and green mixed together, and you sweat, but oh my goodness, it is so good. <laughs> I, I, for me, I hurt like for two days afterwards, but oh my goodness, it is worth every single moment of it. But you never forget what it's like to to have that good stuff. And when it's gone, you miss it. So when the disciples get in the boat and Jesus is not with them, they feel his absence sharply. And then this storm comes up. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, we're going to recap, like I said, a little bit of last week because without last week, this week really doesn't mean a whole lot. So we just came from this part where, like I said, Jesus was trying to get away from the crowds. They've gone off onto the the far side of the lake, away from the cities. They've gone away from Nazareth. They've gone away from Capernaum, out of the farm country at the base of the hills of the Golan Heights. There are these rolling hills that then go up to these thousand-foot cliffs. It really does look quite a bit like where we are in the valley, where you have these kind of rolling hills, and then you have these, these sheer cliffs above. And the Golan Heights, like I said, is that place that where the, um, the Israel lights in the 1967 and the Six-Day War, where they had to take the Golan Heights, and then they pushed the Syrians all the way back to Damascus when they, when they did that. And I say now that area is, is manned by the United Nations. It's the United Nations demilitarized zone like the one that's in between North Korea and South Korea. But that's where they are, is in this sort of rural farm country. And the crowds follow them, where they got in boats 
and they went across over here, and the crowds actually walked along the shore and followed them to this place. And they went up in the hills, and the crowds followed them, and then finally Jesus has relented, and he's done what he does. He's, he speaks, and he heals, and then they realize, man, it's getting late in the day, and man, we have no food, and we are not near a big city where these people can go and get provision. And so we have this whole exchange between Jesus and the disciples where they're like, man, we have all of these people. How are we going to take care of them? And then Jesus says, well, you know, we have one basket, right? The, um, uh, Andrew brings, he said, well, we have one boy who has one basket with two fish and a couple of barley loaves. This is what we have. And uh, Philip at the time was like, man, we, you know, even if we had a year's worth of wages, it's not going to be enough to buy one bite of bread for all these people. And even if we could have enough money, we, there's no place to buy it from. We're, we're not anywhere near we can do that. And instead, Jesus takes the one basket, he breaks, he blesses it, he breaks the bread and passes it out and feeds the entire crowd. It says 5,000 men. So if you picture, you know, one wife and two and a half kids per family, you get somewhere between 20 and 25,000 people that are fed from that miracle. But what I, the reason I want to recap that is what comes back. Because what comes back are 12 baskets full. Jesus says, hey, don't waste a bit of it. Bring back what is left over. And what comes back is 12 baskets full. Enough for the disciples. Enough for the 12 guys that are there that they get to eat as well. So here they are. They're working for Christ. They're trying to do their best. They've just gone out on their first missionary journey. They've come back. And then this happens. And at the end of it, even despite their doubts, despite the conversation, here they are standing with a basket full of provision. That tells you a lot about the character of God, doesn't it? When God steps out and does amazing things, he doesn't forget you. He doesn't forget the people that worked, that had the faith, that went out. And remember, and, and this is the comforting part, and we're going to repeat this over and over again throughout this message. The disciples didn't get it right. They failed. They failed the test. They didn't have the right answer. What they had was the right heart. This was the, the difference. When Jesus heard, he was there speaking to the crowd, what does he say about him? He says he knew where their hearts were in comparison to the hearts of the disciples. So on one hand, you know, the crowd gets it wrong. They want to take Jesus by force. They want to make him king. Their hearts were just in the wrong place. The disciples failed the test. They were wrong too. But their hearts were in the right place. They were genuinely seeking a relationship with, with Jesus. They were genuinely seeking God. They were genuinely trying to get it right. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice to know that when we get it wrong, and when we get it off, wrong so often, that Christ is still saying, no, 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 it's okay. I am still with you, and I am still providing for you. Just step out into your ministry. Step out. Obey what I have asked you to do. My provision goes with you. So we get to this point where it's come into the, the night and we don't know. Jesus has probably gone up onto the mountain to pray. He does that often. He's gone off by himself to go up into the mountain to pray. And so the disciples are heading back to Capernaum, back to their home base. So they jump in the boats. These are fishermen. They're, they're experienced guys. So they jump back in the boats. And then the wind comes up. And it says... The storm, you know, we, it doesn't tell us, John doesn't tell us that this was a bad storm. Instead, he says, the wind came up. This, John's very brief about it. He says, man, the wind came up, 
and they were afraid. And they see Jesus walking across the water. They, they were afraid. Well, I would be too. Let's just be perfectly honest. If I'm in a boat and it's windy and someone's walking across the water, that will have my attention, especially late at night. I've seen a lot of horror movies. I don't know about you guys. You guys watched quite a few horror movies. I know how this goes. I know the axe comes, the whatever it comes next. And then, and then Jesus says, do not be afraid, it is I. And then he gets into the boat with them. And then John says, immediately they reached where they were going. They landed at Capernaum. So that's the summary of where we're going. And that really is the main point. But now we're going to dig deep into the message for today. So remember, like I said, where we were. The disciples have just come out from their mission. If you turn over to Luke, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, that tells us that you know, that's where the disciples go out on their mission. And then Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17, is Luke's recording of this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And remember, this miracle is only one of only two miracles that are recorded in all, all four Gospels. This miracle and the resurrection of Jesus are the only ones that are recorded into all four of the Gospels. This is the fourth miracle that John has recorded in his gospel. The first one is the water into wine at the, at the wedding at Cana. The second one is where Jesus heals the official son in John chapter 4. And then the paralyzed man in, in the last chapter in John chapter 5. And then this one here where he provides the food for the 20 to 25,000 people. It's interesting that in the, the seminary, the, in, the, in the writings, they don't consider Jesus walking on water a miracle. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know what to make out of that. Why? Other than the miraculous things that Jesus does, walking on water, I mean, I can run pretty fast. I've water skied before. Certain things I can't. I've seen those guys on the snowmobiles where they take the snowmobiles across the lakes. Or there's a guy that has a, he took a dirt bike and he put skis on it and you see him like out going on the, on the waves off of the coast of Hawaii. That guy's nuts. But Red Bull sponsors him, so he has plenty of money. But this is not considered a miracle for Jesus to have walked on the water. But feeding of the 5,000, like I say, it's, it's important. It's recorded in all four gospel. And remember, these are signs that John has recorded these for a purpose, that he has put them down for us to, for a very specific purpose. Because John says in John chapter 21, we did this this last week, it says, Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And he says, and he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the gospel. And John and the Holy Spirit selected these miracles as signs to point you to believe and that in your faith you would have eternal life in Christ. Like I say, I know that's repetitive, but it's important for where we're going. The next thing we notice is that the last two chapters... John has done the exact same thing. John chapter 5 starts off with a miracle, and then the rest of that chapter, and John didn't put the chapter breaks in, we did, when we translated it over to, to Latin and then to English, but the rest of the chapter explains that miracle. The same thing happens here in chapter 6. It starts off with the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. The rest of the chapter is to explain the purpose of the miracle. So that brings us to a question, doesn't it? What is the walking on the water 
have to do with the feeding of the 5,000? I mean, it's, it, it occurs chronologically. It happens in the story where, you know, they come down off of the mountain, they get in the boats, they go across, the wind comes up, Jesus comes out to the boat, and they land at Capernaum. That ties it together that way. But why? Why would John put it down this way? How does this help us to understand that Jesus is the Messiah and that in believing that he is the Messiah that we would have eternal life in his name? So remember the way that John started off. He started off talking about Jesus as God. Go to John, John 1, 1. We've heard it several times. You know, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus has demonstrated his authority. He has demonstrated his position or his power. And he has demonstrated them over certain things. Remember, we talked about this. We talked about the, the, how the miracles demonstrated Jesus' power and authority over right over the body, right? He did healing. He did the transformation. He transformed the water into wine. Then he did creation. He created the bread pretty much out of nothing. We had one basket. It comes back as 12 baskets. So we have Jesus' authority, his position, and his power. Remember, in verse 14, 514, his power over sin over sin. It says, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16, Jesus says he has authority to work on the Sabbath because he is doing the work of his father who sent him. It says, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I don't know if you guys, I don't know. There's, you guys know who Russell Brand is? There's you know, the actor, I don't know, actor, comedian. I think I've seen one movie that he's been in. He started this new thing where he's going around uh, giving talks. They're supposed to be like inspirational talks. But the basis of his theme is he wants to talk about how Jesus and Buddha and Gandhi you know, are historical figures, important historical figures, and how we have gotten them wrong, how the world at large has gotten them wrong. He takes a low view of Christ, saying that he was a good moral teacher, that he was perhaps, you know, a, a good philosopher, but he does not say that he is the Son of God. In fact, he says that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, the, the title that Jesus most calls himself by, and it's true, he calls himself Son of Man. However, Obviously, Russell has not ever read John chapter 5. He hasn't read it. Because if we go to John chapter 5, it says right here. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So when Russell says that, you can say, um, excuse me, sir. <laughs> can I open your Bible right here? But the chapter concludes with Jesus giving us four witnesses who testify about who he is, his position, his power, and his authority. He says, John the Baptist the signs that Jesus has performed, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the Bible, the scriptures themselves, all testify about who Jesus is. That he is the Son of God, and that he has authority and position and power to demand these things. Now, there are three responses that the, the scriptures out of 5 and 6 record to what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. Three responses. I'm not saying these are the only ones, but these are the three that John has recorded for us. In John chapter 5, it was anger and denial. 
The Pharisees got angry. They deny that Jesus is the Messiah. They call him, right? They say, man, you're committing blasphemy. You're being blasphemous, equating yourself to God. And then they begin to plan to murder him. It's tough language, but that's what they try to do. They they plan to murder him, and they, they succeed about a year later when he comes back to Jerusalem. In the face of having to lose or having to surrender their power or position or authority, or having to change what they think, the response is anger. They are so confident that they have the right of it. They are so confident that nothing can change their mind. That's a tough lesson for us today, isn't it? A lot of us have thoroughly convinced ourselves that we know what to do, that we know our positions, that we know what to believe, that we know how to act. And we are unwilling to change, and we are unwilling to listen to opposing viewpoints. I would say we have the right of it if we're on the correct side of Jesus, but the attitude is still the same. This is a lesson of caution for us that even when we believe firmly that we have the right of it, that we have the correct answers, that we know, that we are still willing to listen, that we are still willing to examine, that we are still willing to reevaluate. Right? We might always come back to the same conclusion. We're like, no, I, I had it right in the first place. But having an open heart and having an open mind and having open ears is super important. Because these guys, they are the religious leaders of the time. They are the ones who were leading the church. And they had the wrong of it. They had it wrong so bad that they're going to end up killing the Messiah. The next thing to notice, though, is that Jesus still goes to them. So a lot of times, especially, right, we're talking about mission. We're talking about being on mission, going out and spreading the gospel and talking to people. A lot of the things that stop us is we get into our minds, we say, well, why? I know those people. I know what they're like. I work with them. I live with them. Ain't nothing I'm going to say is going to change their mind. Ain't nothing I'm going to do. Ain't nothing I'm going to you know, provide or, or bring to the table that is going to change who they are or change their mind or bring them to faith. We stop ourselves before we even begin. Jesus went anyway. He knew beforehand. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew what their reaction was going to be. He knew what was going to happen eventually to him. He went anyway. These folks at the feeding of the 5,000. Prosperity gospel. They wanted to add Jesus. They wanted him to, to do things for them. They wanted him to be king. To do for them. To add on to their lives. They weren't going to be genuinely changed. He went anyway. He fed them anyway. He spoke to them anyway. He healed anyway. He doesn't say, well, weigh the the odds. Okay, what's the odds that you're going to get a conversion? Well, let's look and see. All right, well, that particular household, that particular demographic, we might get a 10% chance. We'll just just leave that one. Uh, Well, you know, there's an 80% chance here we might get a we might get somebody to listen to us. I guess that's the one we'll go to and proclaim the gospel to, is that one that's 80% based on our, our surveys and our, and our numbers. He doesn't do that. He proclaims the gospel to everyone. He provides for everyone. He gives everyone the same opportunity and the same chance. 
There are times when we are scared, when we feel threatened, or when we think there will be a waste of time to proclaim the gospel. Christ says, go anyway. The second response, touched on this lightly, is the prosperity gospel. The crowds see the signs, specifically the healing, and realize that Jesus can do something for them. Jesus can heal my mom. Jesus can heal my friend. Jesus could repel the Romans. They want Jesus to fulfill their existing desires. They want Jesus to fulfill their existing needs. There's no consideration of getting to know Jesus, of getting to know God's plan or God's desires. When we talk about repentance, we're talking about a fundamental change in how we think and act. Our desires, our wants and needs change from being self-centered to being God-centered. We give up attachment to earthly possession to earthly position, to earthly relationships and our social standing in exchange for relationship and obedience to God. And we, we read this last week, but it's Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. It says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. See, when Jesus feeds the crowd, then he tells them that he is the bread of life. He tells them they cannot go on unchanged. They have to exchange their wants and their needs, their hungers and their desires. They have to change the very course of their lives to walk with him. And they say, no. They're unwilling to stop living for themselves, to stop clinging to the world and its desires. The third response is faith. That's where we started off. Is See, here's the thing. is You know what is in your heart. You know. I don't know. You know what's in your heart and what's in your mind. You know what you genuinely believe. You know your priorities in your life. Now is the moment to take a, a second and reflect, to think about that. There's a... In the, the Marine Corps, you know, they have this order. It's unit core God country. Those are their priorities. That's how they order their lives. Unit, core, God, country. For the Christian, it is God first in all things. I'm second. God first. So ask yourself, have you surrendered to God or are you still fighting? Keep thinking about that. Remember, John chapter 6 starts with the miracle and the rest of the chapter explains the miracle. Last week, we didn't want to be like the crowd. Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and he left them. Then there was the example of the disciples. They were tested, and they had to be corrected. But again, this week, it's a week of encouragement. John does something very peculiar with this event. And he does it on purpose, and we don't want to miss it. See, the healing and the teaching, those are the signs that point to the man, to the man Jesus. And the teaching tells us how to live after we build a relationship with the man. And again, it's, it's tempting. It's tempting to not witness, to not proclaim the gospel, to not go out in ministry. But Jesus says, go anyway. So verse 15 is where we were before. It says, Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and to make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
So Jesus ends up leaving the crowd because they don't know him. And then we go to the end of the chapter. That's where, you know, we get to that point where, and this is where we want to get to. This is the goal. Because it says here, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to him, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He says, We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. We know which side we want to be on. We want to be on the Peter side, the disciple side, and not the crowd side. So what about this walking on water thing? Normally, right here, I would turn to the other Gospels to tease this out. We're not going to do that. John's writing is strange. He spends five verses to tell us that Jesus walked several miles on water, calmed a storm, and delivered them to the far shore. Five short verses. That's the same number of verses that's the very intro to John 1.1. Water into wine got 12 verses. Healing of the official son got 11 verses. 15 verses for the healing of the paralytic and 15 verses for the feeding of the 5,000. We got five verses. Notice he does the same thing about the storm. John doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the storm because the storm isn't the point. This is a point about Christian living and about what it is like to follow Jesus day after day. We struggle. We get it wrong. Time after time after time, we get it wrong. It would be really easy as a Christian to spend our lives looking down at our shoes, feeling guilty, going, man, I, Lord, I failed you again. Like six times today I failed you. To, man, go, I don't know. I don't know how I am with Christ. I don't know where I am. I don't know how my life is. Why? Because we know ourselves. We know our thoughts and our actions. And all of the times, every day that we fall short of how we know we should live. And in the face of a righteous and perfect God, in the shining light of Christ, every bad word, every bad thought, every misdeed stands out like a stain on a white countertop. We look down at our shoes, we shuffle our feet, and we know we are not worthy. It's tough. And then, bad things sometimes happen. Fires and floods and famine and loss and sickness. Jesus says, through all of that, it's different. It's different for you than it is for everyone who's in the world. To the unbeliever, when those things happen, it's like just like being pummeled. They're being beaten into the ground. And they shake their fist at the sky and they say, why, why, why? How can there possibly be a good God when this bad thing has happened? It was just an earthquake in Haiti. Hundreds dead. 
To the Christian, no, it's a trial, it's a test. These are trials through which we are tested in trial. This in Proverbs 17.3. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And this is a lesson of what Jesus thinks of us. So the first part, like I said, I started here on purpose, is a recognition of who Jesus is. Chapter 5 was all about Jesus, his power, his position, and his authority. It's different for us in this culture because we do not recognize kings and queens and princes the same like, like we once did. And the consequence of that, and I think this is on purpose, is the diminishing of those words. When we call Jesus King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we really have no concept of what that means. Because we see it on TikTok and Instagram all the time, people calling each other kings or queens. But the idea behind that is for them to be the highest authority in their own lives, to be second to no one. And make no mistake, Satan wants us to worship anything other than God. He doesn't necessarily want it for himself. We don't have to become devil worshipers. All he wants is for us to worship anything other than God. Anything that can be an idol, regardless of the idol, he wins whether it's money or position or possessions or power or beauty or desires or even other relationships, those can all be idols. And they distract us from a right relationship with God. And John has spent five chapters telling us who Jesus is so we can believe that he is the Messiah and have eternal life in his name. So what happens when we get onto the faith side of the coin? What is it like to be a genuine God seeker? Does it mean we automatically stop making mistakes? No. Do we suddenly become healthy? Are we immune from illness? No. Do we suddenly become wealthy? Everybody get their check? Anyone? No more human needs? No. Are we suddenly righteous, sinless people? It's the expectation we put on ourselves, isn't it? That suddenly I'm going to be perfect, like God was perfect. No. But what we are is full. No matter what, no matter what we need, we have what we need in Christ. Philippians 4.12 says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. So what are the basics of life? What must we have as a human to live? Food, water, shelter, fire, purpose, meaning? Jesus says, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Not I provide bread, not I provide water, I am the bread. I am the living water. He says, I am the shelter. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. 
Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on earth. He makes war cease at the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Are we ever out of shelter? No. Hebrews 12, specifically verse 29. This is, it's a quote from, actually from Deuteronomy 4.24. It says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What about purpose? What about meaning? It says, this is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Remember, the disciples didn't exactly pass the test. Jesus asked Philip and Andrew how they were going to feed the crowd. They immediately turned towards worldliness, to the material to solve the problem, and away from Jesus. However, their hearts were dedicated to following Christ. And at the very end, we read it earlier in chapter 6, 68 to 69, we hear what comes out of their hearts. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And even though they don't always get it right, even though they fall down, they have truly given themselves to Christ. So Christ walks away from the crowd and further up the mountain. The disciples go back to the shore and get in the boats. They came in and head back to Capernaum. Suddenly the winds come up. There's no guarantee of safety 
walking with Christ? Wind and waves and floods, fires, sickness, loss. The Christian is not spared from any of the trials and tribulations of the world. So what's the difference? Where is the hope? Where is the joy? First of all, Christ called us before we accepted him. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Go to him, he's never going to drive you away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but I will raise them up at the last day. You go to him, he will not lose you. There is no place you can go where you are outside of his will, that you are outside of his provision, that you are outside of his grace. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks up to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So when we are in the storm, where is Jesus? He's headed your way. He will walk on water to get to you. With a word, he can deliver you from the storm. And notice, I love the reaction. The disciples see Jesus walking on the water, they're afraid. And you remember, the, I don't know if you guys ever heard the story of Aaron Ralston, the guy who cut off his hand when he was trapped in the, the canyon out in, in Utah. He tells the story that you know, he cut off his hand, he's walking out of the canyon, and there's the rescue helicopter, it's landed, and there's a search party around. He comes stumbling up, and the pilot yells at him. He says, are you Aaron Ralston? And he said, what if I wasn't? <laughs> <laughs> Would they have just left him? Oh, you're going to have to call 911, bud. You know, I'm, I'm only here for Aaron. Same thing. That is, you know, Jesus says, it is I. That many people walking on the water that day? Was Jesus like the, the fifth guy that came by in the boat? <laughs> Jesus gets in the boat with them. Because for people who have given themselves over, Jesus does this. He seeks you in the storm. He knocks at the door and asks to be in the boat with you. He walks on water to get to you. And we don't always have to get it right. Let that go. The guilt that you carry around, the, the, the stuff that, you know, man, I, I fail over and over and over again. You don't have to be perfect or always have the answer. You don't have to be righteous, free from sin. Being a Christian isn't a life sentence to guilt and misery, constantly beating yourself up for your failures. It's not a life of anger and judgment, of hellfire and brimstone. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 say, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, your faith will be tested. You will come across checkpoints along the way. Some of them you will pass, some of them you will fail. Regardless, keep going. Keep obeying, keep loving, keep giving. 
Jesus knows what this world is like. He lived in it. He also knows you. He knows the storm. He doesn't expect perfection. It's it's hard to believe, but God doesn't do mediocre. When God gave you the spark of life, he knew from beginning to end your story. He looked at you, looked at the decisions you would make, the mistakes, the trials, the tribulations, all of it. He said, this is the best. This is the child that will be best for this time and for this place, for these relationships, for this calling, for this work that I have set out for them to do. He said, this is going to be great, and I will be with you every step of the way. Remember Rahab, her her reward for her faith was deliverance from Jericho for her and her family. Then she got a family of her own. God remembered her obedience and provided for her. This miracle, Jesus tells the disciples to collect the baskets at the end of the meal, not to let it go to waste. There was enough left over for the twelve to eat as well. God doesn't send you out on missions he hasn't prepared and provided for. I have to think the disciples had no idea. When they got over there into that rural country, they had no idea what was going to happen. Jesus was like, man, we need to get away from these crowds. All right. Let's jump in the boat. Let's go. Uh, sir, I don't know if you noticed, there's a bunch of people coming. They're still coming. Uh, sir, they're still coming. There's like 20,000 people down there. Sir, all right, well, I guess we'll feed them. I guess we'll, you know. They had no idea. They had no idea that Jesus was going to take one basket of bread and turn it into enough food to feed 20,000 people and there would be 12 left over. They had no idea. All they did was step out in obedience. Jesus said, hey, we're going to this side of the lake. Okay, let's go to this side of the lake. Jesus said, all right, we're done here. I'm going to go up there and pray. You guys jump in the boat, head back over. They had no idea the storm was coming. They had no idea Jesus was going to walk on the water. All they did was do as he asked them to do. And Jesus was right there with them every step of the way. So verse 25, again, it's a dividing moment. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs they performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. We're going to, this is next week, it says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him... God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. They call him teacher and they ask a genuine question, but the answer is one they are unwilling to do. He says, have faith, believe and then act like a believer, obey like a believer, love like a believer. And they say, nope, I can't do it. But Jesus pursues believer and unbeliever alike. And no one is righteous on their own. No one is virtuous on their own. Jesus says he is the bread of life, not that he provides the bread. And if you are still worried about bread, let it go. Your Father in heaven knows you need it and will provide. And God and Jesus are much less concerned with the 80 years or so you are here on earth and much more concerned with the eternity in the next life. If we turn to Revelation 21, where it says there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. What about the storms though? What about the sickness? What about the loss? It's in Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? We do it to ourselves a lot, don't we? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's easy to be a Christian when things are, are easy, right? It's easy to be a believer when we have plenty, when the bed is comfortable, when the AC is on. Say, why do I have these trials? Why do I have this storm? Why do I have this loss? God already knows what's in your heart. He already knows what's in your faith. Sometimes you've got to know. Sometimes you've got to fail. Sometimes you've got to be tested. Some of them you're going to pass. Some of them you're going to fail. But you've got to know. Because at the end, it's going to be you standing in front of God. And a comfortable life doesn't necessarily breed a faithful life. So he's going to drive you into uncomfortable places. He's going to challenge you to do uncomfortable things. You're going to face uncomfortable times. And the end of it, you're going to know. You're going to know where you stand in relationship to Christ. And you'll know where you need to go. Because he is much more concerned with you being with him in eternity than he is with you being comfortable here on earth. It says, for, we sake, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all these tests, in all these trials, in all these hardships, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, we will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the joy and the confidence that we have. We know the end of the story. We know we win. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father God, please forgive me. I spend so much time wrapped up in failure. I spend so much time wrapped up in loss and inadequacy. I buy into the messages that I am not good enough. I buy the line all the time that if I just had this thing, that I would finally be worthy. Please, Father, help all of us to hear you and to know that we are your precious children, that you love us, that you seek us, that you have cut this work out for us to do to love the others around us. Please help us to renew our hearts, to recommit ourselves to you this day, to, Father, on our knees, to ask for your forgiveness, and then to boldly do the things you have asked us to do. Father, the world needs good things to happen and needs good people caring for other people. Please, Father, give us the strength, give us the provision, give us whatever we need, the courage, the words, the whatever it takes, that not only will we stand confident with courage in who we are in you, but that we could then proclaim you to the people around us, that they could see you, 
that they would know what it's like to be in a boat with you. Father, we, we're seeking your face, we're seeking your son. We, we lift our children up to you as they go off to, to school this week, that they would hear your voice loudest, that they would see your screen brightest. That, Father, please give us as, as parents and as grandparents and as aunts and uncles and, and friends that we would get to love on these kids the short time that we have with them. Please help us to have your heart and to have your mind that we could see others the way that you see them and not just see them but to act. We ask all of that in the loving name of your son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for us. Amen. There's cake next door. I don't know about you guys, but I love cake. Oh, there's peaches. There's lots of peaches, too. Let's go fellowship. <laughs>